This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Let's start here. I'm going to get to uh, all these issues with uh, Ontario politics and what happened yesterday with uh, the calls for Hamilton Centre MPP, NDP MPP, Sarah Jammett to uh, quit, not just the caucus, but I didn't have on my bingo card the premier of the province saying, get out of politics. It's almost like get out of the province. But that's how adamant he feels about it. There's a lot um, that's circulating about what happened and why it happened. And I'll get to that a few minutes from now. Dave Bradley just mentioned in the news there are concerns because of some threats to the Jewish population that a uh, Hamas leader overseas uh, in the Middle East has made. I won't document them to any great extent, but he's calling for not just demonstrations, but actions on Friday. And it's no doubt that those things are going to be alarming to people. So what do we know? Well, Toronto Police Services says right now, no credible threat to the city's Jewish communities. But you're going to see an increased police presence. That's where it is. I've said this about Saturday, and I think it bears repeating about Friday, because you want to look through sometimes the front of the car, not the rear view mirror. There's going to be a really difficult set of moments, I think, in the next several days in Toronto or in your community, wherever you are. Um, There's going to be fair comment and debate about tactics and actions and what the humanitarian balance needs to be. Um, Israel is going to be forceful and aggressive in Gaza. They already are. They have been for a number of years. Too much for some, enough for others. That's a really fair statement to say. As we've documented on on this show, Saturday was an event, and there can be one opinion about that event, just the one. And and I think it's turned to people understanding that. I think it's really where it should be. I think some people showed themselves for who they are just after uh, in the aftermath of Saturday. And I won't go on, but what a moment to find out. What a moment to find out that people that believe in justice and peace and togetherness felt the way they did and looked at Saturday and said, well, let's both sides this a little bit. There's no both sides in Saturday. You can get into the depth of what could potentially happen over the next several days. But this is what's going on. And who was on what side and on day one on Saturday and remains there in the days and weeks ahead is something to watch. The Jewish communities cannot, cannot hesitate for a moment to be as secure as they can. There are decisions being made, hard ones, about whether to send their kids to school or not tomorrow. And I bet you there have been all week, as a matter of fact. Toronto police have noted they've increased patrols in Jewish cultural centers, synagogues, and other places of worship. This happened, by the way, certainly in the Muslim community after the horrific mosque attack in Quebec City. We're going back on about seven years now. I think we talked about it a fair bit two years ago, when that beautiful family in my uh, birthplace of London, Ontario, were mowed down uh, by the maniac that's on trial right now in Windsor. And he killed four of the five family members. So we rise up and have considerable concern for those communities. That's pretty fair to say. We're going to speak to Melissa Lansman, by the way, in the 8 o'clock hour, make a note of it. It's not for now, but we'll keep talking about this. But she brought up something yesterday that I thought was really significant. And that is the idea that the federal government, and I don't see this as partisan politics, 
She wants Dominic LeBlanc to make sure Jewish Canadians feel safer on Friday. And we're talking physically safe. We're talking um, make sure that there's bumpers and safeguards in place. She wants the federal government and the and provincial and municipal law enforcement authorities to be working in concert, to be properly coordinated. And I get why that would be. She suggests also, and smartly so, that CSIS should implement some threat reduction measures. Communicate to the Jewish community any intelligence, any intelligence whatsoever related to any threats from Hamas for tomorrow or beyond. Like these end up being sensible things. They really, really do. Let me shift to whether or not Canadians can get out of uh, Israel and out of uh, the West Bank right now. Melanie Jolie, the foreign affairs minister for Canada, had a news conference yesterday, and we asked this on the show, and I think these were reasonable questions to ask, and now we have answers. This isn't a, hey, hop on a free government flight anytime you feel like it just to get to safety. There's no doubt there are desperate people looking to get out under very desperate, dire circumstances. Uh, all throughout Israel and in the West Bank. People just want to see people that they love the most again, if they were away for studying for college or traveling or uh, they're working in uh, in Israel or they happen to be in Gaza. Jolie said yesterday, this is your moment. If you haven't talked to anybody, this is why she's giving the phone number out, the email, etc. There's only going to be a, a tight window before it may be impossible to get planes, whether they're military planes or not, in and out of Israel and the West Bank. Here's what she said. We will act and take decisions based on the number of Canadians that have registered. So that's why I've been giving the phone number so many times, because this will have an impact on how many flights will be available. Uh, But at one point, government flights will be over, and Canadians will have then to take the decisions on what will happen next. Yeah. So it's it's very much if you know somebody there, I doubt that there's a lot of, oh, let's see how this is going to go for the next two weeks. You know how it's going to go. And if you watched any of the footage from Gaza right now, it is shocking and alarming, but not surprising. Like it hits you. But you're like, of course, this was how it was going to happen. Asia Mathkur is a Canadian that's stuck in Gaza right now. And you've heard all the rhetoric and I could roll my eyes about this. I could roll my eyes about that. But you've heard all the rhetoric about, well, anybody in Gaza is probably a supporter of Hamas. Please, please. I'm sure there are some people. I'm sure there are elements of that there. But you've got innocents trying to get out, looking for any way humanly possible. Here's Asia Mathkur. She's a Canadian woman stuck in Gaza, and she spoke to CBC last night. We are just waiting to be honest, to be heard, uh, to be seen as Canadians and for sure as Palestinians as well. Uh, there, you can go to the hospital, hospitals and see all the people are civilians, uh, children. Uh, my neighborhood, it's all destroyed. Yeah, but something to keep an eye on, uh, obviously, over the next couple of days. All right. So yesterday, Sarah Jamis stays. She's the MPP from Hamilton Center who tweeted out and has said before very controversial things. The NDP put up a candidate when Andrea Horvath vacated the seat and wasn't a uh, party leader anymore. She's now the mayor of Hamilton, of course. And Hamilton Center was an NDP stronghold. And everybody thought, well, you could run anybody there. They're not going to lose that seat. They may never lose Hamilton Center. It's just how it is. And Jamma was that candidate. Uh, She was a strong advocate for people who are disabled, as she is herself. 
She was a strong advocate for social justice. There are moments where that is prominent and that is admirable, and there's no doubt she worked hard at it. But she fought a reputation really early on of being anti-Semitic, saying anti-Semitic things, and certainly on her social media. She has now apologized for the second time in seven months as a politician, as a political figure, for social media posts that have enraged the uh, Jewish community. And she did it right after Saturday. And I can understand in with no bias, no dog in the fight, how her uh, her social media activity on Saturday was seen as a celebration of the Hamas terrorist attack. I absolutely can see how it's perceived that way. Is that my perception? Doesn't matter for right now. But I absolutely can see how it's perceived that way. And that's the line. That's a line crosser for me. How could it not be? So she stays. She gets to stay, and those posts are still up. Like, I'm at a loss to try and figure out what on earth happened here. Michael Levitz with the Simon Wiesenthal Foundation in Toronto. Here are his thoughts on Sarah Jamma. No Canadian of good conscience should be framing them as anything other than savage terrorists. And to see it come from a member of the legislator in Ontario um, was absolutely, uh, uh, you know, gobsmacking. He's not wrong. A lot of people feel that way. And a lot of strong NDP supporters felt that way. I don't doubt sleepless night for Marit Stiles, but I'm trying to work hard at better understanding why JAMA stays. There's no restrictions. There's no slap on the wrist. All the posts stay up. What's she sorry about then? And I'm not telling you she doesn't have something to be sorry about. She sure does. This is actually quite shocking for people within the NDP community that it worked out yesterday the way it did. And right now, right now anyway, not a lot of answers as to why. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Uh, Shiba Siddiqui is our producer. Um, and, uh, you, you know, you put these think tank panels together, think about who's going to mesh with who. Mohamed Faki was on with Anna Bailao this morning. And you're thinking like I'm thinking. Mohamed said something that was so prescient and, and it affected you as well. This is my favorite part of the show today was when Mohamed Faki, who's an entrepreneur, founder of Paramount Fine Foods, he came forward. And this is what he had to say that really, really touched me. Hamas is not the Palestinian people. And like we, we all know, there is everywhere, everything from everything. There is the people that don't understand the situation. There is the, uh, the small <laughs> number of people that do not represent the rest of the Palestinian that they were maybe looking like celebrating and if they were they're wrong and we con i condemn that personally and we all did all of us together yeah. but again there is another situation here that people i am personally worried about the civilians everywhere the civilian in tel aviv the civilian in israel and i'm very concerned about what's happening you're right people are moving to hotels the hotels you can't live in people are sleeping in the streets and people are sleeping underground from the Israeli side, too. And this is not healthy. And I think we should not bring this to Canada. My friend from the Jewish community and my friend that they, are, that they have loved one in Israel, they're still my friend. And they're going to be always my friend. And the politicians, they need to remember, we all need to bring Canadians together united. And we could stand united. We could send a message of love and peace. We could be the people who are starting that. Canada could play a big role. On just, and I'm not talking about Hamas. Definitely, I condemn it. Yeah. But I'm talking about, and it's easy that people will say, "Oh, what, Muhammad? Are you supporting?" I'm not supporting any 
of the action of Hamas or anything that happened wrong, of course. And what happened Saturday is horrible, horrific. But we need to stay together as Canadians. Like yesterday, my Israeli uh, colleague or somebody that working at Paramount or somebody working at my other building company now is not the same person that I love and I care about his family member. I do. So we need to stay united as Canadians and stay Canadians. And the Canadian always send a love message. Sheba, I'm glad you like that as much as me. It, it takes speaking up. It takes having tough conversations. It takes, you know, swallowing, uh, counting to three and going, here's what I think and, and here's where I support you. All of that. Canada wasn't even included in the statement. They wouldn't, we weren't even invited to be included in the statement, uh, on, on mm-hmm. that global statement that was issued by France, Germany, United, the U.S., Italy, U.K. I'd love for us to be known as that country that can come together. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because people might say to me, OK, I'm I'm a white guy. I'm a I'm a white guy. I'm a straight white guy. So people might say to me, hey, Brady, you've never experienced racism. And I think they'd be right. But Sheba, the one thing I, I, I think about and the one thing I impart upon my kids is is I don't want you doing a damn thing that would make anybody think you're racist. And there's a difference between those two things. So I'm conscious, not just because, oh, I care about my image. It's just the right thing to do. I sleep better at night by treating everybody based on their actions, not what they look like. It's just that simple. And Muhammad, that that's exactly what I thought of when Muhammad said that. It's It takes a lot to say that. And it was very powerful. Yeah, it was all of that. All right, we, let's move to uh, this was, boy, it, it airs the same time we do, but you'd be forgiven if we didn't start watching the Today Show on NBC yesterday. We didn't know Jada Pinkett Smith was going to be on. Now, did you know she had a book coming out? Because I didn't until yes, yesterday. Yes, I've been waiting. I've been waiting. <laughs> Worthy. Yes. Okay, so Jada. We can listen to it together. We'll go on a walk together. You know how oh, couples do with like, the AirPods? Yeah. One AirPod in each ear. That's how we'll listen to it together. I'm right? only on chapter three of Spare. I've only gotten to the part where he mentions the word Todger, and Gordon and I are still trying to figure out how to work Todger into conversations, the L.A. Todgers. But anyway, Jada Pinkett Smith (laughs) talked about the fact that she's basically lived a completely separate life with Will Smith since 2016. They got married in 1997. They made it nearly 20 years. Here's what she told the Today Show. I feel like you're a straight talker. I am. Except you're not sometimes. Yeah. So why do that? Like, what was the reason? I think just not being ready yet. Mm. Still trying to figure out between the two of us how to be in partnership, right? And in regards to how do we present that to people, you know? And we hadn't figured that out. Come on, figure it out already, Brady. It's been 26 years they've been together. Either you you've, you know when to throw it in or or work on it and move forward. And had they lived separate lives, she's not at the Oscars. <laughs> There's no punch. There's no, no but Jada, she says, I love you. No, oh, hold on, hold on. Yeah. We're running out of time. We're running out of time. <laughs> but she did say that they've just been sort of putting on this act. They go places together for the sake of the kids. That's why they yeah. promised they're never going to get divorced. So they're doing that for their children, for their family, and for the perception, the global perception, which obviously went up in flames. That might be my favorite clip of all time where Hoda says, <laughs> you're a straight talker. And she goes, I am. Except when you're not. And she goes, also true. I'm like, what the hell? Is going-? She's got her in a pickle already. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto. 
Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Let's bring on uh, uh, economics professor from Toronto Metropolitan University, Eric Cam, to join us now. He often appears with us, often on the Roy Green Show as well, our excellent national program, which airs 2 to 5 on Saturday and Sunday uh, in the afternoon. What do you make of this? Is this a little bit heavy-handed from the city, or do you go, no, I understand why they're going there? I think it's grossly heavy-handed, and, well, it's not necessary in one area, but in one it might be, and I don't like running it up the middle, but here we go. If your goal is to reduce things like pollution and emissions and maybe help alleviate the traffic snarl in this city, well, then you're probably on the side of there's way too many cars on the road and we have to start doing something about it. So this is kind of low-hanging fruit. But if you're talking about finding the optimal, for lack of a better word, number of rideshare vehicles on the road, economic theory dictates and really common sense dictates that you don't have to do anything. When there are too many Uber or Lyft cars on the road, there won't be enough business for all of those drivers. And so they will start to disappear. But it seems to me that we're not there yet. I mean, listen, Greg, Mm. I hate to say it, but we made a conscious decision years ago to absolutely decimate the taxi industry. And I don't remember a lot of consultation on that. When people used to use their taxi licenses as retirement plans, and now they're basically not worth the paper they're written on. So I find this exceptionally heavy handed. And I think if you just listen to economics in terms of the number of vehicles on the road needed for a city as large as Toronto, I think that that number will settle to an equilibrium in time. I don't think we have to legislate it. I think also, I mean, the traffic problems in the city, Eric, are, are multi, multi-faceted. Someone could make the case bike lanes have caused uh, more of a traffic snarl. Uh, it, there's no question that that's a case that could be made. And I think that Mr. Fury made it very well when he was running for office. That's true. I mean, again, you know, no one's going to sit here, me included, and say we shouldn't have people riding bicycles in the city. First of all, it's healthy. Second of all, it again, alleviates congestion. But they put all of these things in to try to, for lack of a better word, hurt driving in the city, take away driving in the city or disincentivize driving in the city. There's only one problem. In a city of 4 million people, you aren't going to do that. It's very, very hard to tell people to get their cars off the road. And so in this is one sense that I really think that economic theory will show to be right, that in the Mm. long run, I mean, the very long run, longer than 14 months, when there's too many Uber cars on the road, those Uber cars will start to disappear when they don't make a living. Well, also, I mean, surge pricing goes insane already. Anybody waiting to get a, a cab outside, bud stage, outside, you know, a Leafs or Raptors game, Jays game on, on a busy night, or even it's just Friday at 8 p.m. All these drivers zoom into these heavy, heavily congested areas and they jack their prices up. That's just how that's just that's just pure, pure supply and demand. Not just pure supply and demand, my economic student, but it's pure elasticity. And when the elasticity falls, then you can play games with prices like that. We've seen it in grocery stores. We see it in Uber drivers. We see it in every industry. And really quickly, when I was a little boy and I would be in my grandfather's truck when he sold potatoes, he used to say to me, the hardest part of this job, Eric, is to figure out who you can raise the price and who you can't. So even my Zadie with a grade six Mm -hmm. education struggled with the elasticity of demand. Eric Ham, our guest, TMU economics professor. Um, this has been a heavy six days for all of us, but you're a Jewish man with a Jewish family, um, and, and you're proud of it. Um, and you, you teach younger people right now. What are these conversations like in classrooms? 
what's your level of uh, of being able to focus on on what you do in light of of the of the Hamas massacre on Saturday? Well, you try to bring a little bit of the almost 56 years I've spent on the planet to this. And when students bring it up, I don't avoid it. I don't avoid anything. And we try to talk about it. Um, I try to create a, um, a very inclusive classroom environment. I, I, I thank heaven. I don't think I've ever marginalized anybody in a, a classroom. But that also doesn't mean that I'm not human and I don't give my opinion. And so what I've tried to do this week is I've actually been talking a lot in class about um, your friend and my one of my new favorite listening buddies, Ben Mulrooney, because I think he's made a ton of sense in the way he's approached this. And I've told my students a lot about his father, who I thought defined leadership when he brought in the GST because he said, we have no choice if we want to keep things like health care affordable. And I think that leadership, Greg, and I tell this to my students, that's what's lacking today. Leadership. Fred Hahn comes out and I hear nothing from QP Canada. Yesterday, Merritt Stiles had the perfect opportunity to say, you, Jamal, box for five in a game. But she didn't. She said nothing. It's leadership that is devoid today. And so what I find very easy to talk to students about today is what are our leaders doing in the face of these tragedies? And number two, I can't lie, and I will say it on the radio, I tell my students that, as you've said, what happened last weekend during Simchas Torah, this one's really non-negotiable. Non-negotiable. This is not where you drive it up the middle and remember both sides of the coin. This is about if you are not on the side of the Israeli people that were murdered and raped and kidnapped, mm. think about who you're supporting. I, I saw, you, you really hit me with your comments, and, and I saw an American commentator say, in this world now with social media and, and where we are, if 9-11 happened right now, you'd have 15 to 20% of people going, well, I see what the terrorists were trying to accomplish there. And can you imagine hearing that on September 12, 2001? Can you imagine that? No. I couldn't imagine hearing it on September 12, 2001, but it makes perfect damn sense whatever the heck day today is in October of 2023. Yeah. I don't know what's happened to our society. I don't know when equity, diversity, and inclusion got hijacked by hatred. And hatred for the Jewish community is nothing new. It was around long before me. It's going to be around long after me. And I'm not saying we're the only group, but if there's one thing this week yeah. has taught me is as a Jewish person who had a bar mitzvah is how scary it is to be Jewish. It always was, and it always will be. And we really do thank the people mm. like the Doug Fords who came out quick and say what you want about our premier. He was quick to Twitter to say, we stand beside Israel. And I really appreciate that in the face of too many leaders who either waffled or said nothing. Eric, I got to move it along. Uh, thanks for bringing your passion to our show as always. Stay healthy, Greg. Toronto Today, uh, that's Eric Kim. Uh, you've uh, TMU economics professor. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Warren Kinsella is kind enough to join us now on Toronto Today. It's uh, great to have him on. Warren, of course, can be read in the National Post. Thank you for making the time. Thanks, my friend. Um, we'll get to this uh, Ontario political uh, issue in a little bit. But when you hear audio like that, it is, it, again, there's going to be a tremendous human toll, as there's been for decades with Israel's response here. 
Yeah, and but the thing for everybody to keep in mind, which I think most people know, is Hamas does not equal everyone in Palestine mm-hmm. and in Gaza, right? They're not the same thing. You know, Hamas has terrorized the Palestinian people, the regular folks, um, for many, many years since they basically occupied Gaza. They're not the same thing yeah. as the Palestinian people, and that's been the point that Israel has made for years, is you can't conflate the two. But unfortunately, too many people outside of Israel are doing that. Um, yesterday, little it, it could have been a standoff. We don't know how intense it got. We don't know if there was, uh, you know, uh, I'll, I'll make a reference for people of, uh, of, of older than our vintage. We don't know if this was the salt talks between Richard Nixon and Nikita Khrushchev, Warren. But Sarah Jama, the Hamilton Center MPP, and her leader, the leader of the opposition, Marit Stiles, must have been coming to some kind of agreement. Um, and by late afternoon, JAMA was still in the caucus. Um, people I know in NDP ranks or who consistently vote for them or, or fundraise, in all honesty, they were shocked by this. What was your reaction? I was too. Um, I've got a lot of friends who are New Democrats as well. Merritt Stiles, who's the leader of the Ontario NDP, ordered this new MPP from Hamilton Centre, Sarah Jama, to take down the tweet where she talks about Israel being an apartheid state and defends Hamas. She told her to take it down. 24 hours later, it was still up. And in fact, it is still up. It's still up. And so, you know... Sarah Jama has always, you know, like my, like we've all been told, when somebody shows you who they are for the first time, believe them. Sarah Jama has always been someone who hated Israel, hates the police, and says outrageous, hateful things. So she's always been what she is. This is um, a mark on Merit Stiles' reputation that she will not be able to erase. She said that she stands for human rights and for equality and decency, and she's allowed this MPP, unfortunately is an, an MPP, uh, to continue to make hateful statements without without any kind of consequence. And it's just, I, I don't think Merritt Stiles is going to be the leader of the opposition the next election. She's certainly not going to be premier. Do you think this would have been an issue that would have divided? She's got a caucus of 29 people. Um, would this have divided the caucus as to whether JAMA stays or goes? No, there are people in the caucus who wanted a change up mm-hmm. to and including removing Sarah Jama from from caucus, you know, and in the days of Ed Broadbent and Jack Layton, something like this would never have happened. But unfortunately, you know, with the NDP federally, provincially at the municipal level, there has been this drift towards uh, anti-Israel sentiment that verges on anti-Semitism and sometimes is, is fully anti-Semitic. And, you know, they need to address that. Sarah Jamis should not be in the legislature of Ontario. She should not be a member of the provincial parliament when she's saying, you know, that, that police kill babies and that, that Israel kills people locally and globally. Like, those are the things, those are actual quotes, things that she has said in public places how how can she still be a member of the provincial parliament? It just boggles the mind. I, I know uh, I've said I, I've praised Mart Styles. I, I look and I said she had a really good summer, really good fall. There's a, there's a it factor that I didn't see in Andrea Horvath, but a friend of mine that supports um, that is more left than right, let's say that votes NDP, but also sometimes votes liberal. Texted me last night and his text: Styles burned all her capital gain during the summer in one day. Is that fair? Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, you and I typically, 
should be talking about the green belt. You know, we should be talking about the police investigation, whatnot that is going on. And we can discuss the merits of that, whether it's a good idea or not, a good use of the police's time. That's what the NDP probably would want to be talking about. But instead, we're talking about Sarah Jama saying that, you know, the police protect Nazism and that uh, blacks aren't safe in Israel. So they've failed. Merit Styles has failed. And I think they are woefully, woefully mistaken if they think the people are going to forget this. People are not going to forget it, that she has permitted someone with this hateful tendency to remain in her caucus. Here's the other thing as we wrap. Two things occur to me. One, if you said to me, is this going to happen again with, with JAMA? I'd say yes more than no. Second, Warren, are the NDP going to run her again in 26? I'd say there's no chance of that. So what do you have to lose yesterday? Well, your chance to get rid of her was yesterday. Right. Right. That was when you could have done it. Um, it becomes much more difficult as she becomes an incumbent. And it's like it's not like the NDP are in danger of losing the seat. It's the safest new Democratic seat in the mm. province. If they lose there, they're in trouble everywhere. Yeah. Right. This is Andrea Horvath's seat. Yeah. But this woman was the wrong choice for it. There are so many other decent new Democrats out there who, who don't have this hateful tendency who could have run in that seat. And it merits Stiles, at the end of the day, stood by Sarah Jama and shame on her. Warren, I got a blast. Thank you for the time today and your opinion. I know you're on Think Tank tomorrow with Ben Mulroney, 730. I'm looking forward to that. Thanks, my friend. You bet. Warren Kinsella joining us on Toronto Today. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Somebody we've been really meaning to get on, especially all week, um, given the, the, you know, the tricky navigating it is for parents, period, in an online world, is Paul Davis, uh, who's an online safety and social media educator. You know what I think of you and, and how uh, influential and how, how important you are. So thanks very much for giving us time this morning. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I play that clip, and uh, and that the clip is the tip of the iceberg, isn't it, Paul? For what kids can see online, really, since Saturday with this with this conflict. One message I have to parents every night is that you can't unsee what you've seen, and communication and what's happening is incredibly important, but not through a fifteen second viral video clip that everyone wants to share because of whatever morbid reason they have to do it. Do we need to speak to our kids? One thousand percent. Does it have to be? Does it have to be done after they've been scarred based on what they've seen? No. So my message is threefold. Number one, it states you must be thirteen to have social media. How about we respect that and get all your children off of these platforms that they have no business being on? That should be that should be the foundation for protecting those young children's eyes. Number two, you might say, okay, well, what happens when they go to school and they see it on another friend's phone? Well, this is where I've been promoting in elementary schools forever away for the day. And, you know, you'll have some individuals saying, well, is that really possible? Well, I can tell you I was in Alberta for two weeks in September. Yeah. And 11 of the 12 schools, the only school not allowing away for the day is a high school. Every school has adopted away for the day. So there are no phones in elementary school. So we can reduce and mitigate any harm if they applied that. So let's go to number three, which is, all right, your kid's 13, 14, 15, like in your household. Yeah. They are inevitably going to see it. How do we deal with this? Well, the term critical thinking is thrown around all the time, except in your business and in my business. It is so under, it, it, I can't stress the importance of how important it is to actually in, implement and utilize critical thinking. You have to research what you've seen. You just cannot take a 15-second viral clip and automatically process because your 15-year-old 
hasn't developed the uh, brain capacity to actually understand what they've seen, but what they're doing because of the TikTok generation is that they see it, they process it, they're triggered, and they subsequently share it. And so now they're sharing with other peers who are now going to process it. How do we deal with that? We must speak to our kids. We must talk to them about what they've seen, and we must fact-check it it because not everything being shared over this past weekend is is factual. No, no, no. There's there's videos from three years ago, four years ago, five years ago, and and it's the case with, with all conflicts. And you brought up something that is a problem. If I take the apps off my kids' phones, they'll just look at it in somebody else's. So it seems like the conversation's as important as, as the app management. Well, it, number one, converse, I've always said you must talk, you cannot ignore this. This is the reality of the world, but how you deliver it can be must, must, much less impactful so that they don't see it through a visual of something that could scar them forever. But we have to also understand where they're getting it from. So there's another, there's three different platforms. So there's traditional social media. The worst one that I've seen all weekend in terms of graphic content was Twitter, or sorry, now X. You can also see it on TikTok, you can see it on Instagram. But okay, those are the traditional, but then there are other platforms. Reddit is a cesspool of inappropriate content. And then of course you have the private Discord servers where kids are sharing stuff there. Now let's say you've addressed that. Well, now you've got Signal, you've got Telegram, you've got WhatsApp. So these are the private chat groups where kids will actually join and share content because it's hard to moderate, it's hard to flag. So it's not restricting everything. It's understanding what your child is accessing, if they're going to be subjected to it and having that conversation. Because if you want to take the phone away, well, you're going to solve part of the problem, but that's unrealistic. So communication is the key in this aspect. Was there a moment where this shifted um, in, in terms of what's broadcast on television and even in a post 9-11 world? We got to remember a six-year-old on 9-11 is now 28 years old. They're thinking about having their own kids. Is there a point where you saw it shift? It was actually 9-11 is when I saw everything really take a turn. And then ISIS after that, when they broadcasted the brutality of what they did, that's where I started seeing the horrific scarring of young children because these videos were shared virally. And some of the platforms back in those times didn't exist right back then, which exists today. And so now it's even easier to share those images. And unfortunately, there's this morbid curiosity of what is out there. And kids Mm. will share it because they want the like, they want the comment, they want the status for that 15 seconds of fame. Let's just say even broadcast. I got about a minute here. If if someone said to you, my my kid is 10, should I let my 10-year-old daughter watch the news with me? I'm always inclined to say yes. But would you say it's different just this week or next week or the week after? Yes, it is, because what, you know, what they're going to broadcast, they will censor, they will... So, I, you know, watching it on a broadcast or listening to your show is far different than seeing something sent, uh, that's uncensored being shared on X or Instagram or uh, TikTok, or even worse, on Reddit or in Discord forms. So the answer is absolutely, but how do they see it? Where do they see it? And how do they consume it is the key question. So my message has always been, please protect those young eyes. It's so vitally important. Have the conversation, but don't scar that child. I'm not a mental health expert, but I speak to them all the time, and I know how this will impact them for years to come. I'm going to ask one more question based on a text a listener just asked me to ask you because they're enjoying the conversation, and that is whether or not the Ontario Education Minister should propose legislation that keeps phones out of schools. It, it's got to stay in your locker. It can't be in your class. It can't be in your desk. Should that happen here in this province? 
My suggestion has always been for elementary schools that phones should be away for the day because let's just go back to the foundation of bring your own device to school. It was all based on theories about 21st century education. The theories have fallen flat. There's no evidence whatsoever to support that these have enhanced education upwards of grade eight. They've been distractions. There are kids in bathrooms making TikToks. They're texting each other. They're... So, yeah. you know what? Bring back education into the classroom. And remember, for those teachers listening, nothing will replace that amazing human being that stands before your child called a teacher. Uh, devices are educational assistants with strict restrictions. I completely support them. But if that's too much work, away for the day in elementary school. Paul, thanks for doing what you're doing for being on our show. Let's uh, connect again really soon. Anytime. Paul Davis, online safety and social media educator. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.